you are listening to the Entrust Podcast. This weekly course seeks to provide theological training within a ministry setting so you can take what you learn and share it with others. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. For now, here is this week's episode. Good evening. My name is Taylor Wolf, and I, I serve here at Rocky Creek uh, Recommission Network and doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Um, but I oversee that and had the privilege of the last nine years serving as a missionary overseas through the IMB. And so tonight, we're going to take a fresh look at um, the shifts in Christian missions. And I know that last week, David Jackson came, and I've heard that David Jackson did an amazing job putting 2,000 years of history into one hour. And so tonight was scheduled to sort of be uh, a, a, an additional history paradigm, looking at some changes. We're going to shift away from that a little bit just because we don't want to fire hose you two weeks in a row. Uh, we'll save that and spread it out a little bit more. But tonight we're just going to look at um, some shifts in modern mission. And so if you have your Bible, uh, if you would just open it to Revelation chapter 7. And if you, I feel like it's a, it's a solid place for us to start when we, when, we, when we talk about mission is really as we look at the historical, we've talked about the theological, we've, we've even looked at the biblical perspective of what God is doing. We have to remember that the Missio Day is happening whether or not we're a part of it, right? So God is bringing his plan to fruition whether or not we're being obedient and being uh, the tools that he's called us to be. But in, in Revelation chapter nine, or 7, verse 9, the text says this, that after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. The Missio Dei that started in, in Genesis 1-1 is carried out, and we see this of what's coming in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. You see that as we, as we start to track missions from the beginning to the present, we start to see that God continues to move forward. There is no regression. There is just a progression. There is an advance of the good news, but it's, it's not enough just to know that. It's, it's, we've got to do something with that, and since every nation and every tribe i don't think this is working let me see if i can get it working Hold on. since every nation and every tribe have not heard the good news the mission of god presses forward with our approaches and methods to christian missions under careful evaluation whether or not like i said we're paying attention the world is moving forward the mission is happening god is progressing whether or not we're paying attention to the mission that he is bringing to fruition and so tonight we're going to start to track some of the more modern changes toward christian mission christian mission obviously when we talk about uh the early church of Acts, and we talk about uh, the churches that came in the the 2,000 years post-Acts, we, we know from last week that a lot changed. There's a lot of methods. There's a lot of approaches. We get from Paul to now. We, we go from, uh, from, from Asia, and we go from the 
the specific roots of where Jesus walked to a global church, something that the early church heard about, but they never really had a perspective for. So as it's moving forward, and because every tribe and every nation don't know, the mission keeps pressing forward. Missions was thought of as something done by those from the West hoping to reach the rest. It was the West to the rest. That was, that was literally how it was being promoted. It was for, for Europeans and for Americans mostly in the, late, in, the, in the last 50 to 70 years, taking the gospel from the West to the rest of the world. And so in many cases, as much as there was a missional call, there was also conveniently there may have been some other second motive, like colonialism over the last 200 years or perhaps slavery. You see, it wasn't always just about mission. Oftentimes it was mission plus something else. And so as much as the, the West was taking the gospel to the rest, um, it was also drenched in secondary motives. We would refer to this as the unidirectional approach. It was, it was us as a church, those who have heard the gospel, taking it to people who have it. It was very much one dimensional. It was we have something and we're going to go and we're going to give that thing. The problem is that we didn't actually take a pure form of what Christianity would be. We took our cultural norms. To this day, we can go to villages in Africa and, and we'll hear them singing uh, hymns that were written in American churches over 100 years ago. And you would say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, it's, it's just we're, we've moved away at this point from a, a true exportation of the gospel and what early church and healthy church should be. And we started to really just export what we saw in our churches, right? So many churches overseas actually looked like the buildings would look like churches in the States. The songs being sung, the, the way that people dressed, it became very much uh, a Western exportation of the gospel to the rest of the world. And so the, the approach from here to there could only get so far in terms of church history. And so uh, as the church grew in other parts of the world, it was clear that the mission must be to, in, and from all corners of the world. This multi-directional approach comes on the scene. It was the reality that as, as the gospel went and as the church grew, the big C church grew, and we had believers in places that believers had never been before, as modern cities became, and we're going to talk about that as we go forward, as, as things began to advance, it wasn't just us to them, it also became them to us. You see, many of you would know that the church that we were exporting was actually fractured at its core. We were exporting a, we were exporting a broken product. It wasn't what we thought it was. It was, in many ways, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the church of the, of the text. It wasn't the church of the Bible. It wasn't a pure form of missional evangelism. It was very much culturally drenched in what we thought was best. And so African churches started asking questions. Why do you do that? Asian churches started asking questions. Where's that in the text? Why do you carry those preferences? And so the, the reality came there had to be a shift and how, and how missions was being addressed and, and, the, and the direction of where it was going. It could no longer be a one-way street. It had to not only be a two-way street. It had to be this intertwined network to a place that even today, and, and as we move forward, it's going to get even more than this. But this network is churches in South Korea sending missionaries to the U.S. 
Churches in Mexico sending pastors to the U.S. Churches in London sending pastors to the U.S. Churches in Africa sending pastors to China. China sending to Africa. It went all over the place, and that's exactly what's happening now. This network is continuing to grow. And so Bishop Michael Nazir Ali said that mission had to become from everywhere to everywhere. We had to move away from here to there and from everywhere to everywhere. And oftentimes it slows down and it, and it really ends in this place. And this is, this is part of the reason why the advance of the gospel has sort of stagnated at this point. And you're going to think this is a sort of a weird place to put this, but I think it's important for us that the work of the Great Commission is not limited to a skilled few elites. Rather, it is the task of every person who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Well, of course, right? You, you, you know that. We hear that. Travis preaches that. We communicate that on a regular basis that we're all supposed to take... Our mission statement here is that we would take kingdom act, personal responsibility for kingdom activity. Yet, the reason that it's included here is that that's exactly how the church was functioning for many years. There was a skilled, elite group of people who were, who were tasked with taking the gospel around the world. You know, Alan, this, uh, this morning in, in his sermon, he, he, he spoke on this, just the reality that we think sometimes we're called to a specific task. We're called to a higher calling. And the reality is that when it comes to the Great Commission, it's all of our responsibilities. And I think that that has to be at the core of really what started to see this change. We started to see a change in our direction from us to them, from them to us, from everybody being integrated. And part of that was just the reality that Africans started to see their worth in Christ and not in what they had been told they were worth. They were no longer worth just a wage. They were no longer worth just, just a small bit. They started to see their worth in what God had called them to do. And so that missional charge, that calling, led them to leave their place and to take the gospel to places where it wasn't or where it was and it had regressed. When we talk about uh, Eastern, Western Europe, we start to see huge regressions of Christianity, huge place where obviously the gospel, uh, Roman Catholicism, you get into the Reformation. We talked about this last week. There's, there's, there's huge highs where this is the central, the central place for many years in terms of Christianity in the world. And yet at some point, something changed. And I believe this is part of it. They were set up in such a way that this elitist high group was so responsible for advancing the gospel. When they didn't do their work, the common man was no longer able to do it. He didn't know it was his job. He wasn't equipped for it. He wasn't willing to go and do it. And so when that happens, you no longer have neighbors talking to neighbors about the gospel. You, you no longer have a desire to see your city reached. And when you don't have a set desire to see your city reached, your country falls. And when your country falls, the epicenter of Christianity starts to shift. And so it starts with personal responsibility in kingdom activity. But it wasn't just a change of approach or a change of direction. It also became a change of approach. And as, as the spread of Christianity continued to expand to new places, missionaries faced challenges such as languages, cultures, and access. They're not limited to these, but I would say that these three are some of the biggest three that even to the today they face. Now, when you export slavery in the name of Christianity or Christianity in the name of slavery, however you want to put it, you don't necessarily have to speak the language to be able to chain somebody up and tell them they're a Christian. You don't have to 
You don't have to be able to culturally sensitive to truths of the gospel when you're overbearing yourself on somebody and saying, you will do this. The approach has to change when you say, hey, you're walking in darkness. I'd like for you to be walking in light. I love you enough that I would come to this place to be able to communicate the gospel to you in such a way that you would understand it. It really changes the game. It, it shifts the approach totally. And so when we talk about language, obviously we, we, we know what it's like when people walk in a room and, and you might feel like, but they should just speak my language. I feel like I'm not a part of their world. Or you go in a restaurant and they're speaking a different language. Or you go wherever it is, you go to a park and you hear people speaking in a Slavic language, then you're just like, what are they saying probably about me? Yet those are the same barriers that the gospel, the mission, is facing on a regular basis in terms of mission. You see, we talk about language, we talk about culture, we talk about access, we just have to go to a little bit deeper level. And so when we talk about culture, most people just throw that term out there. But I'd like for us to focus in here because in the weeks ahead, we're going to be diving deeper. And so I think to sort of get ahead a little bit, we're going to talk about uh, culture and what specifically culture is. So culture is defined as the total way of life of a people composed of their learned and shared behavior, patterns, values, norms, and material objects. I like this definition better. In basic terms, culture is the rules of life for a people group. Just the way they do things, right? It's easy for us to see the way that they do things externally, right? It's easy for us to see maybe how they act in certain settings or, or the words that they may say or the way that they laugh or the way that they talk to from husband to wife or within the church. It's easy for us to see some of those things, but it's a lot harder. And I want us to see that culture makes up more than what we can just see. Culture is a multi-dimensional thing. And so you'll hear people when you talk about missions or you go to another country, you're gonna talk about worldview. You're gonna throw that word out there. We're gonna to see tonight that worldview is a part of culture. And so um, if, you, if you got your notes there, we sort of have this, this little graph here. And uh, when we talk about culture, culture is made up of these four elements, the behaviors, the values, the beliefs, and the, and the worldview. And if you could, it's, it's hard to put this in, into a, an image, but um, if you could imagine sort of the earth, at the core of the earth, there's, there's a, uh, this hot, right? There's this, this, this really fiery uh, core at the center, and there's these layers that go out from around it, right? We, we've all kind of seen this picture before. And much the same, culture looks like that as well. At the center of culture is worldview. And worldview is the lens through which a people group view everything okay so that's at the core of it and when we talk about uh the world view you know it's the deepest level of a culture you know at this level we're going to be talking about things like what's real what is a human being what is the meaning of history how do we know what is right and wrong what happens to a person at death so when we talk about worldview Worldview is at the deepest part of a culture. We're going to start there and sort of work our way up. It answers the question, what is real? And then we move from worldview. The next layer, sort of as you would come out in the sphere idea, would be, would be beliefs. And beliefs, they answer the question of what is true. We talk about beliefs. They're going to answer things like, what do they believe sin is? 
What do people trust in for acceptance? How do people explain sickness or natural disasters or similar troubles? What is the religion of the people? These are their beliefs, right? So their worldview is driving out a belief system from what is real that communicates what is true. It's based off of that. It sort of grows on itself. As it goes up, we get, to, we get to values. And values, they seek to answer the question, what is good or what is best? Values, we're talking about deeply held preferences for one state of affairs over another. These include ideals, principles, feelings, or conditions. They seek to answer the question like, what traits do people value in others? Who are recognized as leaders in the community? Are people motivated to do the right thing by social pressure? So this is shame or guilt or fear. How does the culture work? This is where we're going to get that level of values. Um, you're going to have an attitude concerning money and property. Does property have a symbolic or utilitarian value? Is it freely shared or is it held privately? Who are considered heroes? These are, these are important questions when missionaries address people groups to understand what is good. And then we get to behaviors. These are the things that we can see, right? Generally speaking, and they answer that question of what is done. So, food. How does it taste? You wouldn't think that might be a part of the culture, but it is. You might not think it's driven by what's good and what's true in the worldview, but in some ways it is. Greetings. How do they greet one another? Do greetings differ according to the setting? Do they differ according to the, to the gender of the person? What occasions are common? What do people do for leisure or recreation? How are typical homes laid out? Are they furnished or are they not? Major celebrations and holidays. How do they act out their culture? How do they act out their worldview through their beliefs through their values and ultimately in their behaviors and so when you think about culture i just want you to think for the next weeks that we're in this course that it includes all of these things beyond that of course it does but at least for these next few weeks it's going to help us navigate some of the things that we're going to talk about so worldview at the core making up this bigger picture of what culture is Someone said that culture is like a river. You can obviously see when things are floating on top and you, it's easy to navigate it, but you don't really know what lies just below the surface. In order to get below the surface, you've got to dive down just a little bit. And if you want to get really far down, you just got to keep going. And that is one of the challenges to missionary service. So when we look at um, culture, something that comes out of culture that we're going to talk about in the weeks ahead is contextualization. And contextualization is the process and practice of expressing the gospel and living it out, living out the life of the church in a new cultural context. So how does this play out? Well, you got to think about how do we interpret the Bible? How do we communicate the Bible? And ultimately, how do we apply the Bible? So hopefully... That in the future, and even currently, as we're moving forward, we don't we don't we learn from our history, and we do not have the same problems that we've had of exporting a product that's inconsistent with the text. So when we go to teach something, is it foundationally true to the Bible? If so, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna agree to implement that. Where it's gonna be contextualized. 
but the questions are always going to be asked on what is true and at the core of the Bible, the Bible within a cultural context. How does it play out? In Acts 15, 1 Corinthians 9, there's different examples of contextualization that even Paul had to practice, where cultures, the Jews and the Gentiles are coming together and they're having to reconcile their differences and contextualize it. And so sometimes you would say, well, it's not necessarily bad, right, to, to sing, let's say, uh, in a foreign country that sings, but they speak English, they're going to sing an American hymn. You wouldn't say that's bad, but is that best practice? How do, we, how do they play together? How do they play nicely? And in doing so, uh, you're going to see as we talk about contextualization, I think it's in two weeks, um, we're going to be diving into sort of what does contextualization look like for a new believer? How do they display their beliefs? They come to faith. They want to, they want to tell others in their community that they're a believer. We're going to talk about a spectrum of contextualization. We're going to talk about maybe what's acceptable and maybe what isn't. In some settings, there's a, there's there's six levels sort of on this on this uh, on this scale, and, and C1 to C6, and, and and as we dive into that, we're going to talk about just sort of a C1 is maybe somebody that's super nominal, no depth. C6 is somebody that's terrified to identify with Christ altogether. They're unwilling to get baptized. You can't even call them a believer. Yet they're living in their culture, dressed fully in their uh, traditional clothing. They may even be attending a mosque, yet they, they're identifying as Christ. And you would say, okay, which one of those is good? We're going to talk through that, okay? So contextualization is a major part of uh, missional work today. Uh, the, the opposite side of contextualization or healthy contextualization would be syncretism. And that is allowing your culture to be justified or finding text to justify your culture or vice versa. So that's to say, hey, we do this in our, in, in our culture, so we're going to go find a text that supports us, and we're going we're gonna to be able to do that, right? So uh, whether it's sin or not, we're going to find a way to sort of manipulate it, and ultimately you end up with a synchron, syncretistic culture, which you're trying to avoid as you are advancing mission. Being able to communicate the gospel in the heart language of a person is critical, critical to effective evangelism and discipleship. This one here opens doors and closes doors almost faster than anything. Being able to talk to someone on a heart level about heart things is critically important to the advance of the gospel across the world. So last or a couple of weeks ago, I had a meeting here. And uh, a gentleman who was meeting with me, I, I had never met him before. He showed up in the lobby and um, he, he greeted our, our greeter. And uh, he knew immediately that she was from a, a, a Eastern European country. And he just starts speaking to her in her native language. And like, you could just see it changed something about her. Now, this wasn't a gospel conversation. This was just a conversation. But to be able to communicate in her language to her directly it just, it went so far, she couldn't stop talking about it. This guy, he just happened to have studied or he lived in, in Eastern Europe for 10 years and he was able to speak her language and, and had that been a gospel conversation, it would have opened it. But just as much as the gospel is opened or hearts are opened with language, hearts are also closed when we're unable to communicate. That's even true for English. We think English to English, we know how to communicate, right? It's the same words, but do they land the way that you wanted them to? I have a message that I want to communicate to you, but am I doing it the best way so that you're hearing what I'm trying to tell you? 
Well, most of the time we would say, of course, we, we get it. We're experts in language. Some of us have been speaking it for who knows how many years. But I would suggest that maybe the majority of us, when we really get down to the core of it, sometimes we have trouble really communicating what we want. What about with your spouse? What about with your friends? What about with your work? There's just times when you say, hey, I, I, I was trying to communicate this, but I just missed the target. But what's the effects of that if when we come to Christianity, we come to belief, we come to salvation, if we just miss the target? The heart doesn't get penetrated with the gospel. There's no true repentance. There's no true turning away from sin. There's no true understanding of salvation. There's no true commitment. There's no true advance of the gospel. And just within a few years, you'll start to see something that doesn't look quite right. Doesn't take much. It's one thing for somebody to say they can speak another language, and oftentimes we'll we'll see people and we'll say, yeah, I'm fluent in so and so language, and we'll say, okay. We see them in a setting and they have to go to speak it. And really what they mean is they actually just understood it. They weren't able actually to communicate it. And so for someone to say, hey, I'm I'm fluent in that, you better be confident in saying so. Because uh, it's one thing to be able to talk, it's another thing to be able to communicate gospel things. Identifying and empowering local partners who will advance the work is critical to ensuring that the missionary task moves forward. Remember that we're, we're talking about in this section a change of approach. This in and of itself is a total shift away from us to them, here to there. This is very much embracing from everywhere to everywhere. It's to say that we cannot go alone. There's a, there's, a, there's a parable or a saying in Africa that says if you, if you want to go fast, you, you go alone. And if you want to go far, you go together. And that's, that's really at the heart of what mission, cross-cultural missional work has to have. It has to be a commitment that says we're in this together. So I respect you sitting across the table and you respect me. Our, our, our respect is maybe not even founded in in one another hopefully it is but it's at least founded in the gospel right we're on we're on the equal term we may be from totally different backgrounds villages to cities poor to rich educated uneducated but the gospel is the great unifier for mission and so when we think about that it's a change of approach because it's no longer just us being the exporters but it's us being the equippers it's us being equipped it's us being invested in. It's us being having people invest in us. It's us teaching and us being taught. It's us going and us receiving. It's us sending and, and, and us having folks sent our way. It's, it's a total shift from the historical approach of missions. Missions is not something we export. It's something we do. It's something we must be passionate about and we must be willing to have others come alongside us. Oftentimes in ministry, you'll talk to people and, and you start to really get to the core of what they do in their said ministry area. And, and oftentimes I'll find out that really they're just a one-man team. And the sad part about that, while there may be great success, is the question is always going to be who's next? Who are you handing the baton to? You might have carried this ministry 50 years, but that might be the end of it if you're not prepared to hand the baton to somebody else. 
And so some of you are in retired states. Some of you are, have more experience in life than I do. And my question to you would be, what do you have to hand to the next guy? You got a lot. You have life experience. It doesn't have to be ministry experience. You have life experience. You have the ability to converse, even if it's in your own culture. You have the ability to just sit across and have conversations with people. When you, when you really think about it, one of the things that, that my generation, the generations behind me are struggling with is the ability to have conversations with people. But your generation grew up without texting, and you made it. Your generation grew up without a lot of the technology and the advances that we have, and yet you might think, well, that's, that's not worthy to share. Well, I'm telling you, it is. To sit at a table and have a conversation for a few hours with a few friends goes a long way. It's one of the reasons why we're struggling immensely to have men and women step up and share the gospel. It's not that they're unwilling, it's that they don't know how to have a conversation. So it comes across super awkward, right? It's, it's very It's very out of the ordinary. It's not something that just flows, yet some of you have those gifts. So as we think about mission in a foreign land, we must think about mission here, identifying the local partners who will advance the work after we step away. But it doesn't stop there in our change of approach. It also goes to our change of focus. This map here represents in the, in the green areas, partially reached places, uh, the bright green, uh, significantly reached or darker green, uh, superficially reached, sort of underreached or yellow. When you get to orange and red, you're talking about truly unreached people groups. So for us to come to a, a place like this to talk about Christian mission and not look at where we are, we would be doing a disservice to what God has called us to do in Matthew 28, Acts 1 8 everywhere we've been called to go forth. We have to know we can't turn a blind eye. We don't get to pat ourselves on the back because we have a few green dots. Because I don't know, I'm not very smart, but I think there's more red than there is green. This is the reality of the current state of affairs when we talk about Christian missions. In the next few weeks, we're also going to talk about a survey of Christian missions. Where is it, where has, where is it going? Where are we at? What are we missing? What do we need to do? We're going to look at sort of the world as a, as a whole. We're going to dive into some of these places. We're going to really be vested in, in, in trying to figure out ways that we can connect not only seeing dots, but connecting us to the dots, right? This is really what it's all about because it's one thing to see this and be moved by just the sheer volume of it. But let me just throw out a statistic to you that says that on this, this represents roughly 5 billion people in the red. that have no opportunity to hear the gospel or respond to it. If it doesn't move you, you got a problem. If it doesn't cause you to have a heart issue, we need to talk. If it's not a big deal, then you've missed where Christian mission has been going since Genesis 1-1 and where it's headed in Revelation 7-9. You see, the emphasis was given to reaching those who have never heard the gospel before. This was a change of focus. Right? It's not to say that the evangelized, the reached church doesn't matter. It's not to say Rocky Creek doesn't matter. It's not to say Greenville doesn't matter. It's not to say we abandon our Acts 1-8 strategy of reaching here uh, a little bit farther, a little bit farther until we get to the ends of the earth. We, we don't abandon that. We just have to do something with the unreached. And for hundreds of years, we just assumed somebody else was dealing with it. And now, where we have actual statistical information in front of us, 
We have to make a choice. Do we, do we actively decide to be a part of what God is doing in those places? Because I can guarantee you while there may be red and no gospel witness there, God is working. You will be surprised to hear that in places where the gospel has never been and nobody's ever communicated, people are having dreams about a man coming on a horse. They don't understand. Dreams that are calling them out of their darkness and into the light. Things that are, are happening on a supernatural level that you would say, but that's just made up. No, it, it's happening. God's at work in places. Yet, we have to battle ourselves with the text that says, look, how can they respond if they never heard? What do they do if they never hear it? Somebody's got to tell them. The question is going to be, will it be you? So when we look at this, these are, these are, these are big statistics, right? Uh, different, different organizations define a people group differently, but we're going to go with this number. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's valid for, for what it is. Uh, total people groups across the world, as of this afternoon, are 12,010 people groups. Total people groups. So a people group generally is defined that what would separate one from the other would be a uh, linguistic, so an ethno um, division. So usually it's language that, that distinguishes a people group. So you could have uh, people living in the same city, but there may be 30 people groups there, right? They may all look the same. They may have one common language, but they might have 30 different languages they speak secondarily to that. That would be different people groups. So 12,010 UUPGs. These are unreached, unengaged people groups. There are roughly 7,000. I think I actually have these backwards uh, because they're, anyway, uh, 7,221. Uh, unreached people groups, there are 3,148. I'm confident that they're backwards. Uh, so, so just switch those on your notes there. Uh, there, are, there are more uh, unreached people groups. Yes, unreached people groups, then there are unreached, unengaged people groups. Sorry about that. But what this, what this shows us is when we talk about an unreached people group, this is a people group that we've said, hey, there's a, there's a sufficient enough amount of gospel presence for them to be able to reach themselves. You know what that mark is? It's 2%. 2%. So we have 100 people in this room. We make up a people group. There's two of you that are believer. We would say, statistically speaking, that's enough to be able to reach the whole room. You see why this progress is slow. It's not to say one is greater than the other or one is lesser than the other. It's just a, a division of how it's done. When we talk about unreached, unengaged people groups, no matter how you put the numerical value, we have to know this, that no one is there and no one is going currently. So the question is, how do we get the gospel there? When we look at, uh, we're going to look at a map here in a second of the 1040 window. I think last week you guys may have heard this term, 1040 window. I think uh, David said it. Uh, and we just wanted to sort of let everybody in on what that is. It's not a big secret. But it's this rectangular area that makes up North Africa, the Middle East, and Asia approximately between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees latitude. Here's what it looks like. Okay, Does that make a lot more sense? Visuals are a lot better than talking about maps. Okay, so, so within this box... There are 5.27 billion people within this box. 62% of the population live among UPGs with limited to no access to the gospel. I'm going to put it up there in a second, but I don't think it hits if the map's not there. So 5.27 billion people live in this window. 62% of the population live amongst unreached people groups. So I can just do some quick math. That's just, just about 3.5 billion people 
that have no opportunity to hear the gospel. What do you do with it? What do we do with it? How do, how, how do we just sit back and say, it's great statistics, Taylor. Those are, those are big numbers. God's going to do a great work. Or are we willing to engage darkness where the darkness is? You talk about places that are included on this map in areas where Christianity began. This, this, I, I watched a slow progression uh, video the other day of the movement of Christianity where Christianity was all in the north of, of Africa and then slowly it was pushed out. Islamic crusades came in, Christianity moved out. As, as migration happened, water sources moved, different, different effects, the gospel moved from one place to the other and so we find ourselves with a map like this that we've got to do something, something with. So as I said, 5.27 billion people live within the 1040 window. And 62% of the people live among UPGs with limited to no access to the gospel. And as people began, began to move from rural villages to cities, this new concept that will be another week, uh, interest students that we're going to talk about, um, became to, it came on the scene. Urbanization began to affect historical missiological approaches. So we talked to missionaries uh, when we went to the field that when they first went to the field, they would ship a town car full of all their stuff. It was all they could get their hands on in the States. It would fit in their container. They fill it up. They had toilet paper, all this good stuff in there. And, and they ship it off to Africa. And they would tell stories about like village after village after village in their Lincoln town car. And they would just drive it. And they would go. And, and now the last time the guy went, one of his observations was just the reality. Like there was no village after village after village. It was just town to town. There was no town cars. There were pickup trucks. There was, a, there was an advance in the, in the roads. There was no longer just a dirt path that, well, some of the roads still look that way. Um, there was no longer majority dirt paths, but there were actually asphalt roads that connected people. There was, there was internet. There were, there were marketplaces. There were actually grocery stores that imported goods and sold them. There were, there were medical clinics. There was some sense of security. Yet, when the shift happened from rural village to cities and urbanization became this thing we talked about, we're still trying to figure out how to do it. Urban work is one of some of the hardest work in terms of missionary work across the world. Where people live on top of people and people are busy all day long. You think about your own time. If I were to say to the majority of the people in this group, hey, could you be here at this time, 9 o'clock to 2 o'clock on a Tuesday morning? You'd be like, hey, let me just check my schedule, right? You, you, life goes on. You can't just abandon the things that, that you have. And so urban work is some of the hardest work. Yet, in urban centers, we find the majority of these unreached people groups. They move to the city. Somebody saves money. Somebody goes. They do some work. They come back. They bring another person with them. In some cities across Africa, over 1,000 people a day are moving to the city. These aren't just statistics we're making up. These are real facts. Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo, over 1,000 people a day move to the city. It's massive. They move from the villages to the cities. 
They bring their languages. They bring their cultural norms. They bring their, their backgrounds, their religious understandings, and they come to the city. And I don't know about you, but if you made that move, you'd be pretty vulnerable to a lot. So you have all these new things in front of them. They have new tastes, new flavors, new friends, new opportunities. But they also have the opportunity to, to hear the gospel in those places where we could never get to the village, but we could get to the city. And so in many ways, the, the landscape has sort of changed. For me, I love being under the mango tree in the village. It was always my favorite spot to be. The place that I was the most uncomfortable was in the government offices. Yet, it was the mission field. It was how do I engage in the place that I am, not how do I engage in the place that I want to be. And so as the people changed and, the, and, the, and, and where they were changed, the strategies had to follow. At the start of the 20th century, 86% of the population, this is of the world, lived in rural areas. And by 2050, or 2050, 65% of the population will live in an urban center. So in 150 years, you have literally flip-flopped the makeup of the world from the country, from the rural, to the city, urban. You have people on top of people. You have apartments on apartments. You have skyscrapers on skyscrapers. And, and, and I would just say, let me put it in perspective, you're starting to see that here in Greenville. Some of you have been here a long time. You're like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. It didn't look like it used to. We talk about today is the birthday of Rocky Creek. We see the pictures, right? I mean, Woodruff Road used to be right here. I mean, it was, it was a different day, right? I, I've talked to different people, and they've, they've shared stories of, of this being like a dirt road at some point. Well, we can't imagine that. But now, what, <laughs> what's Woodruff Road when you think about it? Woodruff Road's not a dirt road. Woodruff Road's not, not what it was. It's, it's not a time when it was, you know, what, what it was. It's, it's very much a place you don't really want to drive down, right? It's a place that's full. It's a place that's being urbanized. It's expanding. How many years ago did Five Forks come on the scene? I mean, it hasn't been there that long, right? But this, this, this city just sort of pops up, right? And, and what was that? Well, it was, it was where you went to get to Woodruff, right? I mean, it was, it was on the way, but now it's its own little town. And, and, and this is starting to happen all around the world. And as it happens, then the city starts to spread out. And then countries around the world get this. Their capitals of the country get so big that they just decide, we're just going to move the capital. And they go, they plant a new city. This is happening in numerous countries where there are too many people living in the capital. And so they go to the next place and they plant it. And so urbanization, while it is quite the opportunity for many people to advance and to have a better life in so many ways, it also presents its challenges in so many ways. People have no time. People have no patience. People have no access. And yet, the gospel has to find a way to move forward. So if you ever want to see a day when a Revelation 7-9 you know, idea happens, when, when God brings all of these peoples from every tribe and every tongue around the throne, when this happens, it will only happen because we have adjusted and shifted our missional strategy to the to the current state of affairs for missions right we got to figure out where the people are and go to them we don't get to figure out what our strategy is and how do they fit into it we've got to say hey this is where the migration is happening we've got to we've got to be there to to meet that need nobody saw the the ukrainian war happening four or five years ago so you couldn't put a mission strategy ahead of that 
So in some ways you're reacting, right? But how many of those refugees are in places right now where they're going to hear the gospel maybe for the first time? Now, while Christianity has been in Ukraine for a long time and mission work has been there for many years, when you start to get your life twisted around and you get put in another place, you might be open to hearing something you've rejected for a while. So how is God using that? How are we responding? How are we impacting darkness with the light? So this tonight, just to sort of close it, I have these, these, these three people groups here. These are the largest people groups in the world. The Bengali Muslims, Shaikh, they're Islamic people. They make up 132 million in Bangladesh. Japanese, they're Buddhist, over 118 million. Turk, your Turkish people's Islamic background, 62 million. What do you do with it? What do we do with it? What do missionaries do with it? We just hear it, put it out of sight, put the paper away? Or do we do what I hope we're going to do in a second? Do we pray for it? Do we start to make a plan for it? It's one thing to talk about the dots on a map. It's another thing to do something about it. And so when we started tonight... We started with a Revelation 7-9 sort of uh, concept of, of where this thing is heading. We know that that's, that's going to happen. God has promised and He has never failed and He will never fail. But we also have a personal responsibility to be engaged in mission. And so what I'd like for you to do is, uh, as we close tonight is just take some time to pray for these three, these three people groups here uh, specifically. And then uh, when you're done, we'll, we'll conclude. Thank you for listening to the Entrust Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast. We hope that you take what has been entrusted to you here and give it to another.